In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Science journalist Jessica Nordell came up with a simulation of large organizations that showed that even very mild biases could have a huge effect in the ways corporations or universities work. I'm talking to her about how bias affects the world in which we live and how we can counteract it. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Jessica, lovely to meet you. We're going to be talking about bias in this podcast, which I'm fascinated to learn more about. But would you do us the favor of introducing yourself first so that our listeners know what your background is? And and you have a book as well that you might want to tell us about. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. My name is Jessica Nordell, and I am the author of a new book called The End of Bias, A Beginning, or I think in Britain, it's a different subtitle. In Britain, it's The End of Bias, How We Change Our Minds. And I am a science and culture journalist. I write for a lot of different publications. I've written for the New York Times and the Atlantic and the New Republic. And a piece just came out in The Guardian not long ago. And yeah, I've been looking specifically at the issue of bias and discrimination for, oh gosh, more than 10 years at this point. I worked on on this book for almost six years, about five and a half years. Uh, I have kind of an unusual background. I studied physics and poetry. So I have this kind of very science rational approach to looking at problems, but also I don't think that captures everything. What a wonderful combination of subjects. I always feel like everybody in the hard sciences should do at least one art uh, in their studies and vice versa, actually. I think everybody in the arts should do at least one science and then they have a little bit more of a wide-ranging viewpoint on the world. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I think they're really important, different, but very equally important lenses with which to kind of experience the world. Wonderful. Could you start by explaining what you mean by bias? Because obviously the word itself probably means different things to different people. And speaking as somebody who's possibly not been on the receiving end of much bias in his life, it would be quite useful to understand a little bit more about how how you've written about it anyway, that word. 
Yeah, absolutely. The kind of bias that I'm focused on is kind of one subset of this broad, broad category of bias. So what I'm looking at is what we might call unconscious bias or unintentional bias that we express toward one another interpersonally. And the idea is basically that we all grow up in a culture and as a consequence, we learn the categories that are salient in that culture. And they're different, you know, depending on the culture and the time and the place, but we learn categories and learn associations and stereotypes that are associated with those categories. And then when we interact with one another, like when you and I are interacting right now, we kind of bring to bear on that interaction all of the debris from the culture that has filtered into our minds. And then that can influence the way that we respond to people in a really spontaneous and kind of automatic way that, you know, it might kind of conflict with our values. You know, we might want to treat everyone exactly as we would want to be treated. We want to treat other people with fairness, but then these stereotypes can kind of interfere with that and cause us to behave differently. So that's what I'm talking about in this book and when I talk about unintentional bias. So we're talking about the sort of the hidden things that you might not even know you've got that you sort of almost need to make a big effort to go, do I have these biases and what can I do about them? Is, is that broadly what you're talking about? Yeah. And in fact, there are a couple of different things that might be going on. It might be that we're really just not aware that we have these stereotypes and associations. It might be that we just haven't really examined our own beliefs that carefully. I mean, I found over the course of working on this project, many times I would realize that I had certain stereotypes or that I had certain beliefs that I really hadn't paid very much attention to. Paying attention to them and seeing them is a humbling process, I think, for all of us, but it's also really important and really liberating, ultimately. Is it quite difficult sometimes? Because I imagine some people, when you help them understand that they have an unconscious bias, some of them probably get quite defensive about it. I would imagine, I, I'm trying to imagine myself, and if somebody was to say, did you know that, in fact, that's quite a biased viewpoint? And you, if you think of yourself as not biased, and somebody tells you and shows you that you are, you can respond in different ways. Some people would embrace it and think, fantastic, that's great. Other people, I could imagine, could become quite uh, defensive or even potentially aggressive. Absolutely. I mean, people can become extremely defensive because the truth is, you know, most of us, we want to think of ourselves as good people and we all think of ourselves as good people. We also think that we're more objective than most people. There's this one fascinating study that found that 90% of the people who were interviewed thought they were more objective than average. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Which, you know, yeah. if you think about the bell curve, like how yes. are 90% of the people all on one end of the bell curve? But, you know, so we think of ourselves as good. We think of ourselves as objective. And then, yeah, when we're confronted with evidence that we might not be, it's very upsetting to our sense of ourselves and our sense of who we are. And that moving beyond a defensive response, I think, requires some mindfulness, you know, some deep breathing, some self-awareness, and some emotional skills to deal with that kind of discomfort and then be able to move in a positive direction afterwards. So we're particularly here talking about biases against, I presume, people, as opposed to cognitive biases. Is a cognitive bias something that you talk about in your book, or are we talking about the social biases more and focusing on that rather than ways of thinking? I'm talking 
talking more about social biases and the way that they apply to people of different identity groups, different ages, sexes, racial and ethnic backgrounds, gender identities, things like that. But I mean, it's related, you know, to these other cognitive biases, which are all sort of spontaneous, automatic responses that we're not necessarily aware that we're participating in, like, you know, the availability bias, where we, you know, we're biased toward things that come to mind more easily, even if they're not necessarily more representative. There's one I've always found fascinating, and I kind of recognized it. I didn't know it was a bias when I was a kid, but the idea that a subject comes up, and then suddenly that subject seems to come up more often. You suddenly notice it. There was, there was one moment where, for some reason, the Elizabethan period, I mean, we were studying it at school a bit, but it, it was suddenly everywhere. It was suddenly <laughs> talking about, and I was thinking, this is weird. This is, seems to have come from nowhere. And of course, it's just the way your brain works. You're suddenly aware of that and you notice it. So you've got all of that confirmation bias as well going on in your head. Absolutely. And you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, that was something, not to get too meta about this, but that was something that happened to me while I was working on this project. Like I started to see the impact of interpersonal bias everywhere, you know, right. in at the doctor, you know, at work, you know, in the neighborhood. And I think that could actually, in this case, be a help because once you're kind of attuned to the fact that we can interact with one another in ways that aren't exactly what we intend and don't comport with our values, that can be really valuable. It can help us see, you know, and illuminate these patterns that otherwise could be invisible to us. Is there a reason behind the human brain having this bias, this sort of way of thinking about it? Is it just to do with the, the brain's got limited processing power and it's easier to sort of have chunks of ideas and summaries? Is it, does it come from that, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's really a byproduct of our need to categorize. We go into the world and we can't just take in sort of like, you know, trillions of bits of data, you know, in undifferentiated. So we need to categorize things. We need to have a way of making sense of the world as children in order to, you know, be able to identify a cat versus a dog. But the challenge is that that, that kind of becomes hijacked by these cultural messages that then kind of glom on to the, the basic structure of categories that we need to survive and create, you know, extremely harmful consequences, you know, in some cases, lethal consequences. If you think about bias as it applies in healthcare, for instance, and the way that women's, uh, symptoms are taken less seriously than men's or in the case of race and healthcare you know the way that black and latino patients pain is not treated as seriously as white patients or obviously in the case of policing i mean there are cases where these kinds of minute assumptions and snap judgments can have extremely extremely harmful you know life altering consequences Mm, which means that we really, especially in those situations, we really need to address them and be as fair as possible. Yeah. I, I, was, I was also thinking a little bit about continuous and discontinuous thinking. I, I was talking to somebody about the colors of the rainbow. Mm. And I was, I was looking into how colors are described through history. And it has to be quite careful because what you might think of as a color you understand as a color, the word that's used might be different for a different range of colors. And I came across the fact that the colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, as I was taught, are not universal. And they can't be because it's a continuum of color. There's no set point where red becomes orange. You know, lots of people go, that's definitely orange, that's definitely red. 
there's a point in between where you might think it's red and I might think it's orange and we can argue and we're both right and both wrong, arguably, because it's a continuum. Right. And I think the human brain has a lot of difficulty with ideas that are continuous sometimes. As you say, it's much easier to have categories, but the trouble comes when you've got the edges. You know, you come to the edge of a category. Does it fall into grade A or grade B? And the simple answer is it it doesn't really. It's in its own subcategory in between. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your book, do you discuss how we can get out of these patterns of thinking? How, for example, can we train police officers who have a very stressful environment to work in? They're trained in a certain way. How do we help them to unlearn <laughs> their biases? You know, that was really the animating question behind this book. What I really set out to do was not just, you know, describe the problem and kind of illuminate the problem, but really answer this question, like, what do we do about this? You know, the the consequences are serious, they are compounding, and it's essential to solve the problem. So the whole book answers this question, but I'll (laughs) I'll give you a few things to think about. When we think about how to change police behavior, for instance, a couple of the case studies that I looked at were really efforts to to alter the way police interact with their communities. And one of the stories that I found really interesting that was a success story was a program in Watts, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles that has historically been Black and is now majority Latino neighborhood and, you know, experienced the kind of disinvestment that so many similar communities have experienced over decades, experienced a lot of police violence, as well as levels of gang violence. And there was just a complete destruction of trust between the police and the community as a result. So what a civil rights lawyer named Connie Rice did was, along with some other organizations, developed this approach that really tried to change the way police interacted with the communities, change the kind of snap judgments, stereotypes, and ultimately, you know, dehumanizing behavior. What she did was changed the incentives for the police. So instead of telling police your job here is to make arrests, they were told your job is to create relationships. And so whatever you need to do, this particular cohort of police, whatever you need to do to build positive relationships with the community, that's how you're going to be evaluated. That's what's going to determine your promotions. That's your goal. And so they really just shifted the incentives. And what happened was the police went into this community. They started working collaboratively with the community, creating programs, going into communities of seniors, helping, you know, finding out what seniors needed and working kind of side by side, not in like a savioristic kind of high horse way, but in a really an equal collaborative way. The point being to create more trust. And what happened was pretty remarkable. I mean, the the program started about 10 years ago and there were a couple of independent evaluations back in 2019, early 2020, that found that this approach had had a bunch of different consequences. It did change police behavior. People in the community felt more respected, more valued, treated more as equals. But not only that, arrests went down and crime also went down. 
So there was this kind of synergistic consequence, which was that increased trust also not only benefited the relationships between the police and the community, but also benefited the community and that their safety improved as well. That's fascinating. So with the right approach, I like the idea that you change the goals of the police there in, in terms of what they're trying to do, not how many arrests can you make and how many bad people can you put in prison, but how can we improve things? So human beings don't need to be told to change their behavior. They need to be given a reason to change their behavior. I think so. And you know, what's really interesting about that case It wasn't explicitly like an anti-discrimination program. It was a trust-building program. Mm. And, you know, I think about another really successful intervention that also decreased discrimination as a consequence and also was not explicitly an anti-discrimination program. I'm thinking about an intervention in a school where teachers at diverse middle schools, which is like grades six, seven, and eight in the U.S., were given empathy training. So they were they were invited to learn about ways that teacher-student relationships could improve. And they were asked to think about how they might use these empathic approaches in their teaching. I go into it in a lot of depth in the book, but long story short, at the end of this training, school suspensions decreased for Black and Latino students who are traditionally suspended at higher rates than white students. And so similarly, it was was not explicitly like an anti-bias intervention. It was really a trust-building and empathy-building intervention. And that seemed to have really, really meaningful behavior change too. That's really interesting because you've got an unintended, well, intended consequence, I suppose, in this case. But yeah, I was thinking of unintended consequences, but in this case, that's specifically what you want. But you're not telling people necessarily that's the goal to achieve. You're giving them another way of achieving it, and that's just, as a consequence of it. That's fascinating. Um, I was going to ask you about anything in, you know, obviously police and communities is a very extreme situation. You've, you've got a very clear-cut sort of two sides to the coin to look at there in terms of bias in one group and another group. What about a big organization, let's say a, a big business? How would one try to deal with unintentional biases in a, in a big organization of, let's say, tech workers, for example? How does one identify it? And then what can one do to try to reduce it? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a huge problem that so many companies are trying to tackle right now. There are a lot of different approaches that have been found to make a difference. I think that if I can just step back from the question a little bit, I think, you know, one thing that is important to think about when we're talking about organizational change is there are kind of like a couple of levels at which to think about it. There is the practical kind of technical intervention level. Like what do we specifically do? What are the specific policies or, you know, hiring practices or promotion processes that can help eliminate bias? And then there's kind of like a bigger picture, which is what is our commitment to this and what is our goal ultimately? Because what I see sometimes is that companies will have sort of the first layer of practices and and processes and you know, some kind of technical interventions, but those can fall short when there isn't the layer of commitment and the specific kind of 
long-term goals that are coming from leadership. So in terms of interventions, there are a number of things that have been shown to work. There are some anti-bias trainings that seem to be effective in terms of at least getting people on board with this approach and this problem. Mentorship really seems to help and sponsorship. So when people in leadership are assigned to specific people from less represented groups and given, you know, the task of sponsorship, that has been shown to improve those folks' ability to ascend in the organization. Then there are things like standardizing processes. So often in an organization, people will use pretty ambiguous criteria for making really important decisions. You know, if we have some experience in the workplace, we've probably all been in a conversation where someone says something like, well, you know, that person seems like a good fit. Or I'm not quite sure. I just don't get, like, I don't get the right feeling about this person. Or that person seems like they have a lot of potential. I think we'll give them that extra difficult project and, you know, give them a chance. All of those sorts of decisions where there aren't really standard criteria or objective criteria are really prone to bias. That's where a lot of bias comes in. So one thing that organizations can do is try to identify the decision points that where there's ambiguity or something not quite standard about the way a decision is being made and seeing if there's a way to bring more standardization into that process. Because without it, you have all these patterns of bias that come in, like um, homophily, which means literally love of the same. You know, we tend to see people who are like ourselves and think that they're pretty great and think they have a lot of potential and, you know, give them opportunities that we might not give to people who we don't recognize as being like ourselves. I've also heard of people hiring people they don't think are a threat because they maybe see that they're not necessarily that good at the job themselves, but they are in a senior position and they definitely don't want to hire anybody that could show them up. (laughs) Exactly. So I think that's why, you know, you have this other layer, which is like, what's the real commitment? You know, one of the CEOs who I interviewed said that a lot of other CEOs that he knows kind of want to hire people who think like them, who don't necessarily threaten them, who aren't going to really challenge them that much because they want to be surrounded by a comfortable posse of people who are all kind of, you know, in agreement. And his approach was like, I don't want that. I want people who disagree with me and who challenge me because that's how we get good ideas. That's how we actually find out what the best solutions are. But you have to have a pretty strong sense of self to be able to do that, right? Yeah, but I was also thinking about the medieval concept of the court jester the person that was meant to make fun of the king in certain circumstances. I mean, an incredibly dangerous job and quite a few of them were executed, but it was sort of seemed to be a necessary job to sort of bring them down a peg or two or challenge them. And in, in many cases, the court jester wasn't actually tumbling and, and doing jokes, although there was one incredibly famous French medieval, uh, the farter. Uh, he was apparently paid a lot of money by a medieval king because he could fart tunes on command. I'm trying to, trying to remember what his name was, but he was apparently very famous in medieval France. But the idea of having court advisors whose job was to tell you things you didn't really want to hear mm. was sort of part of it. And I think that's an interesting thought for leaders or politicians, or you know, almost have the devil's advocate sitting there going, actually, 
I think you're being an idiot. I think this is the wrong thing to do. Even if you don't agree with them, it makes you second guess, perhaps. Exactly, because then you have to defend your point of view, right? Mm. If it's challenged. Yes. If it's never challenged, you never have to defend it. That's a nice idea. I think all CEOs of big companies should be required to have a jester and they should follow them around dressed in motley <laughs> with a pig's bladder and tell them they're idiots and bash them on the head. It'd be rather fun. Probably go down quite well with the media as well. Um, <laughs> so we, we talked about big businesses. What about on a personal level? How can you help us to identify our own biases and how can we try to deal with them to better ourselves? You know, I think that the first thing that all of us can do, and this is going to sound very simple, but it's actually really hard, is pause and notice when we're interacting with someone, whether it's a stranger or a colleague or a neighbor, just pause and notice what kind of assumptions are we bringing to this interaction and maybe asking ourselves, would I be treating this person exactly the same if they were of a different identity? If I'm talking to a woman, if I, you know, I can think to myself, if this person were a man, would I be using this tone of voice? Would I be making certain assumptions? If this person were of a different race, would I be acting in a different way? So I think starting to just pause, notice, and really be honest with ourselves about this. It can be so hard to just see what's happening in our own mind, in our own interactions, but it's incredibly liberating to do so. So I would challenge anyone who's listening to this to just, you know, don't worry. It's not as scary as it as, as maybe it sounds, because once you start to see the ways that cultural patterns and cultural stories are influencing us, we can interrupt it. And what happens when we interrupt it is our relationships become much more authentic and much more meaningful. And we can start to, we can start to communicate with one another across differences in a way that is trusting and more humane. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Are there some societies which seem to, in your experience, be more biased than others? I mean, have we come across any societies where the, the sort of unconscious bias is almost not a big thing or is more in certain types of society? I, I was just thinking of more, I don't know, more extreme political views. Does that tend to go hand in hand with more bias? Or if you're more centrist, do you tend to be less biased? Or if you are more religious, are you less biased or more biased? Are there any general trends in groups of people that you've observed in your research? You know, when you look at the general trends of unconscious bias, they're sadly pretty universal. I mean, these are cultural messages that we all absorb. But what's interesting to me as someone who's also a fan of history, like you, is that if you look at other times in history and other places, you see different patterns. So for instance, if you go back to ancient Egypt, we see no evidence of skin color prejudice in ancient Egypt. Race had not been invented. So racism had not been invented. And if you look at archaeological evidence of pottery, if you look at tomb excavations, you see that there was intermingling and intermarriage between Egyptians and Nubians, Nubians from present-day southern Sudan. Uh, there's a tomb excavation that shows a Nubian man named Mayerpuri, which means lion on the battlefield. Um, he was buried in the Valley of the Kings among the most senior Egyptian leaders of the time and was buried with gilded leather collars for his dogs, all sorts of riches, quivers of stone-chipped arrows. And he was a very high-ranking member of the Egyptian administration. So I think when we can look at moments of history where people did not have the patterns of bias and discrimination that we have today, it's really empowering. It can give us, I think, a lot of courage as we try to create a world after bias and prejudice. You know, similarly, we see really interesting patterns of gender equality in other cultures at other times. The Haudenosaunee, Native American Confederacy, also known as the Iroquois Confederacy in the United States, had women in extremely important political positions. And there are these amazing records of Europeans in the United States trying to negotiate with chiefs from the Haudenosaunee and saying things like, we can't understand why you keep bringing women to these treaty signings. They don't belong here. And could you please stop bringing them? But for them, it was just like, why wouldn't you bring women? I mean, women were politically important in that society. Yes. So there was a complete mismatch there of expectations. Are there any other historical examples? I was, again, trying to think of the medieval period where typically you had primogenitor, your son would inherit and would typically have the, the, the value and women were treated differently than they are today and possibly differently than they were pre that period. How do we uncover historical biases like that? I mean, you talked about the Egyptian thing, which is really fascinating. And you had light-skinned and dark-skinned Egyptians. I don't even know whether they described themselves as light-skinned or dark-skinned in, in any way, did they? Yeah, the interesting thing about ancient Egypt is that their whole notion of ethnicity was different than ours. If you spoke the Egyptian language and you practiced the Egyptian cultures, you were considered ethnically Egyptian. Right. You know, it didn't depend on your origin, your skin color. So the, the boundaries that were drawn around ethnic categories were just based in different things. 
Another really interesting historic example that I think about is Rome. At the time, one thing that guided a lot of thinking was this Hippocratic text about medicine. And in it, there was this description of how, you know, the humors influence health and well-being and the environment influenced our humors. And the idea, which was designed to guide traveling doctors, said that the cold, wet climates of Northern Europe produced a lot of moisture, which made people kind of dim. (laughs) And the sun, the hot sun in Ethiopia darkened the skin and dried out the humors, which made Africans highly intelligent. And you can see this worldview in some Roman scientific manuals. Vitruvius wrote, the Southern nations are quick in understanding and sagacious in counsel. And Vigetius, who was a Roman author, wrote, we were always inferior to the Africans in wealth and unequal to them in deception and stratagem. Wow. So if you think about contemporary stereotypes about, you know, white supremacy and white superiority and assumptions about, you know, the mental, you know, superiority of white people, you see that inverted in some of these Roman writings because of the ideas about the climate at the time. And of course, Carthage was a huge threat to Rome, you know, North African empire of incredible power and incredible sophistication. And in the end, it was a a war of attrition and destruction. I mean, they destroyed Carthage because, you know, it was too much of a challenge for the Romans. I mean, I think that when we when we start to really sort of deeply grasp these differences from different periods of time, I think what it does for me is it begins to loosen the grip of some of the contemporary cultural stereotypes when we can really understand that they're not natural, that they're cultural inventions and that they were different at different times, it makes it easier to let go of them. Yes, I find the study of history particularly illuminating in those areas because, you know, you suddenly have to rethink your idea about, in your case, you've talked about the Romans and you suddenly think of Carthage and you think of Egypt and you think they're both African, North African, sure, but they're still African nations and incredibly powerful historical entities that stood alongside, well, every other empire that's ever been. Perhaps we tend not to think of them in that way. They're, they're Carthage or Egypt, but the skin color was, was irrelevant to them to a large extent. It was, you know, be like judging people by their hair color, Absolutely. which perhaps people do. Are the biases to hair color? I mean, a lot of contemporary women in the West change their hair color. I don't know what the rate of changing one's hair color is amongst men or you know, compared to women, but my guess is more women change their hair color than men. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that that gets to another kind of bias, which is age-related bias. And one interesting thing about age-related bias is that for men in majority groups, like white men in our culture, age bias is often the first time that they really experience discrimination. Ah, right. Yes. So I actually think that everyone kind of lambasts old white guys. I actually think old white guys are a really undertapped resource and community in working on this problem because as they age, they start to experience discrimination in a really personal way. And it's often, you know, when we experience something personally that we can start to empathize with others' experience of the same thing. Do you think that makes it more difficult in some ways in that if they haven't been on the receiving end of negative bias, because it's probably a positive bias for them, 
and they suddenly realize and they suddenly have to do a bit of a vault fast and, and reassess how they seen the world or how the world sees them. That must be quite challenging. Yeah, I think it can be. But I think it also is an opportunity to join in this work of creating a more fair and humane world for, for all of us. What about taking it down to the area of the family? So I think there must be quite a lot of biases in the way that parents deal with boys and girls. Is there a difference uh, in the way boys and girls are treated or expected to behave by their parents? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, parents Google the question, is my son gifted? At twice the rate, they Google, is my daughter gifted? Ah, interesting. What would they search for about their daughter? Would it be, is my daughter pretty, perhaps? Or Yeah, I don't have the data on it, but it would be really interesting. Yes. Uh, my guess is, yes, probably parents Google something about their daughter's appearance more than they Google about their son's appearance. So why do you think that is? I mean, obviously it's, it's bias, but why is society developed that way, do you think? And why is it perpetuated and how do we stop it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Big question, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sort of like, why, why is... Um, why is the sky blue? Why, yeah. Yeah. why do the birds sing? Yes, okay. Let me reduce the question then a little bit. So if you're a parent, how do you try to manage the unconscious biases so that you can reduce passing them on to the next generation and thereby hopefully they can then reduce it in the next generation a little bit. You know, is there a strategy which we can adopt? First of all, I would say the place to start is really to just start to notice and then start to dial back the amount that one is complimenting one's daughter on her appearance or complimenting one's son on his strength or cleverness. You know, there's an interesting story that I tell in the book about uh, a preschool in Sweden that really tried to tackle this problem in particular. And they trained the teachers to avoid actually referring to the children as boys and girls and instead just refer to all the children by their first name. So they kind of decreased the use of categories at all. They also really started to look at the way they interacted with the children. So, you know, if a little girl ran up to a teacher and said, do you like my dress? The teacher, instead of saying, oh, yes, it's very pretty or it's very cute, the teacher would say, oh, is it comfortable? Right. Okay. Yes. So I think there are small ways to start to undermine some of those expectations in interpersonal interactions with children. Absolutely. I mean, of course, this wouldn't necessarily mean there were different outcomes. You know, it might be that you would still have a gender split. There might be more women that went into caring professions because they choose to, or more men that went into engineering because they choose to. But you're starting people out on an equal footing. And I've always, I mean, feel free to disagree with me out here, but I've always felt that we should have equality of opportunity, not necessarily equality of outcome. It might be that some jobs are preferred by certain categories of people. And as long as it's a free choice, and as long as they're given all the opportunities to do any other job they want, then from an individual basis, that's fine, I would have thought. Would you agree with that? It's interesting. I think the challenge with sort of the discussion of equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity is that you know, there are so many biases that people face that it's hard to know right. what people would choose if those biases weren't present. 
So because the unconscious bias has actually trained them in one direction, that's they've gone in that direction. I see what you mean. So you can't really separate out a cause and effect there. Especially if you compound it with the idea of role models and we sort of become what we see. So, you know, there are a lot of examples of, you know, situations in which once there were more women in a particular traditionally masculine field, other women kind of moved into it because they saw that it was possible for them. You know, there was an existence proof suddenly. So I think often we we talk about like, well, you know, this person just chose to go into field X versus field Y, or this person chose to scale back their work and spend more time with their family. But I think we really have to look at those choices in the context of the culture and the constraints and all of the things that influence our choices. I mean, I agree with you, like people have different preferences and, you know, who am I to say that person X, given all the opportunities, would be equally interested in choosing all of these different fields. But I think until we really get rid of all of the obstacles, we can't say that people are really making free choices. I see what you mean. So kind of a bit of a tangled web at the moment. So it's very difficult to unpick all the pieces scientifically. I was going to illustrate to you an interesting I think it's an interesting observation that my other area of interest is horses. I love my horses. I look after and train various horses. Some people have said to me, you should never buy a ginger mare, for example, what's called a liver chestnut colour. So it's a sort of orangey brown colour mare because they're always difficult to deal with. And I always think that's absurd because of course they're not. The colour of a horse's coat, the fact that it's an auburn colour of coat, makes no difference to its behaviour in my experience at all. I mean, white horses are harder to keep clean, obviously, because they get filthy really easily. And I've had some absolutely amazing liver chestnut, ginger, auburn mares in my career as a horseman. And so I think it's completely wrong. But it's weird that there should be biases in something as simple as the coat colour of a horse, which is not really overlaid by human social endeavours at all. But it's a little illustration that just popped into my head that I've had people say, oh, you should never buy that colour horse. It's absurd. Really absurd. Interesting. So I suppose human brains are flawed. We're horribly flawed. And what we should try to do is try to correct as many of those flaws as we possibly can without being obsessive about it. Because I think we could become over-constrained or feel over-restricted if we were worrying about every single bias all the time. It must do your head in a little bit. Now we've written this book and you suddenly see it everywhere. Does it get in the way of social interactions, perhaps? I don't think so. I think what got in the way of social interactions was not noticing these things. But it was a transition period when you started to see it and you thought, how am I supposed to not do this now? And I've got to make myself not do it. It's a good question. I'm trying to think if there was a transition. I would say there was an experience of kind of shock when I first began to notice how many snap judgments I was making about others particularly about women. I mean, I'm a woman and I believe in gender equality and I believe women are absolutely as capable as men in all ways, except maybe upper body strength um, often. But so seeing the way that harmful lies about male superiority had influenced my own mind and my own interactions with other women was very upsetting. Mm. And it's something that I still have to be vigilant about today. How do you go about communicating to other people when you see 
biases at work. Do you have a strategy for communicating that to them to try to help them? Obviously, as you said at the beginning, people are going to react very differently Mm -hmm. to being called out on this, and it depends how you do it. Do you have a strategy? No, I think that often asking questions is a good strategy. There was a judge I spoke with once who noticed that there were two men who were being brought into the court for, I think, missing child support payments. One man was white and one man was black. And the legal response was totally different for the two men. And she asked the attorney, or she was, I think, a court magistrate. Anyway, she asked the attorneys who were involved in the case. I think she just said something like, could you tell me why you think there's a difference here? Can you tell me what's different about these two cases? And that was a really effective way of getting people to see what was going on rather than necessarily calling them out in an aggressive way. She kind of asked the question and then they were able to come to an understanding on their own. So I think that can be helpful, kind of keeping in mind that people are going to come to understanding and change at different paces and sort of at their own pace Keeping that in mind, I think asking questions can be a really helpful strategy. And there's been a bit of a theme here, which is rather than confronting people, is trying to help them discover for themselves. And I think if it's self-discovery, it's possibly less shocking. And and, and also coming to that conclusion slowly yourself is perhaps a gentler way of managing this kind of behavioural change. Well, it can just be more effective because it doesn't risk as much backlash you know, that's the real risk with this kind of work is that if you kind of push people in the wrong direction, you can get a really harmful backlash, which can be counterproductive. So it's challenging. I mean, it's it's also really frustrating, obviously, for, for people who are on the receiving end of bias to think, oh, gosh, you know, now I have to be I have to be so gentle and easygoing on someone who is maybe acting in harmful ways. It's a balance. You know, I think there's sort of the the compassion, but also there's the accountability that is important too, because people aren't always going to move along at the pace that we need them to move along. So looking to the future, to draw this to a conclusion, looking to the future, how do you see bias? How do you see society evolving around this feature? Do you see things changing? Have you seen them changing? I think at this moment, particularly after the events of 2020, in the murder of George Floyd, there has been a resurgence of commitment to issues of racial equality and anti-racism. You know, I think after the Me Too movement, there was some commitment to challenging sexism in the workplace. It's definitely on the, you know, business radar in a way, you know, that I think historically hasn't been so I think we have the opportunity, you know, it's in it's in the air, it's in the zeitgeist, there's a huge opportunity to make a lot of change right now. I think the question for me is still whether people in positions of leadership who really have the power to invest resources and to make really deep changes, whether they are committed, mm. you know, whether they understand that this is important for all of us and that we're all connected and that the gifts of an entire society are being held back by these biases. Are we talking about political leadership in particular or are we talking about you know, uh, industrial leadership as well? 
both. I, I mean, I was thinking specifically around companies, but yeah, absolutely. Political leadership, corporate leadership, cultural leadership, all of these. Just to sort of end the podcast, is there any way people can look for more of your work if they want to follow you on Twitter or see more of your work or read more of your writing? How would they find out more about you? Well, the first thing I would say is the book would be a great place to start. The book is called The End of Bias. That is available everywhere books are sold. I'm on Twitter at Jess Nordell, J-E-S-S-N-O-R-D-E-L-L though I'm not a super active tweeter. Um, You could go to my website, jessicanordell.com. It has events and you can contact me through the website if you have feedback or want to share your own perspectives or reactions to my writing. Um, Those are all good ways to be in touch. Fabulous. Well, look, it's been really interesting. And also, I'm going to take away from this an attempt to challenge some of my own thinking and my own communications a little bit see if I can do something about it. Um, I'd like to think I wasn't very biased. I have a horrible suspicion that I'm more biased than, than I appreciate. Uh, and I think that's possibly the beginning of a journey that I've got to go on. Well, I would love to hear about your journey. Please, you know, stay in touch. I, I want to hear how it's going. I think most people are in that category of believing that we are not very biased. You know, 90% of us think that we're less biased than average. Wonderful. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.